Welcome to HIV Update. I'm Sharon McKay from the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center, and I'm joined by the new director of the AETC, Dante Gennaro. Hi, Sharon, and thank you. It's an honor to be here and my pleasure to announce our new podcast starting next month. I'm really excited to let everyone know our new podcast series will be starring some new voices in addition to Sharon's. Myself and Peter Gaynambar will be joining the show to discuss HIV-related topics for medical professionals who work with communities highest at risk for acquiring HIV and other SCIs. Look out for our new series, and again, thank you for having me here today. Thanks, Dante. HIV Update was born two years ago when Bob Sidolo and I were brainstorming ways to provide information about HIV medicine to clinicians in Connecticut. In our first year, we recorded six episodes, five of which were released. The last episode, an interview with doctors Andre Sofer and Joe Cantorino, was recorded shortly before Bob became ill with what would be his final health problem. We released this last interview on hepatitis C management in primary care in memory of our most valued colleague, Robert J. Sidolo. Many of the risk factors for hepatitis C are the same as those for HIV, and people with HIV sometimes experience co-infection with hepatitis C. So we're pleased today to talk with Drs. Andre Sofer and Joe Cantorino about hepatitis C medicine. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Andre Sofer, who went to medical school at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and was a resident and chief resident at Yale. After practicing medicine in rural New Hampshire for four years, he returned to join the faculty of the Yale Primary Care Program where he works both in the inpatient and outpatient settings and serves as one of the inpatient firm chiefs. His research interests include the epidemiology of infectious diseases, viral hepatitis, and postgraduate educational systems. Hello, and very glad to be here with you today. Dr. Joe Cantorino completed his residency training and chief residency in the traditional internal medicine program at Yale New Haven Hospital. He then completed his infectious disease fellowship at Yale as well, where he spent his last year of training treating hepatitis C at the West Haven VA Hospital. He is now on the ID faculty at Yale, primarily based at St. Raphael's campus. Hi there, it's a pleasure being here. So for today's learning objectives, we are um, hoping to review the screening and diagnostic recommendations for patients with chronic hepatitis C, understand the new simplified treatment options for hepatitis C infection, and learn prevention and harm reduction strategies in patients with chronic hep C. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Um, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about the history of hepatitis C treatment. Um, and I wanna ask first, when was hepatitis C discovered? It was known for a long time in the 70s and 80s that there was some kind of it appeared to be a bloodborne virus, but it wasn't really known exactly what type it was. People used to call it non-A, non-B hepatitis. And when I was in medical school, um, there were individuals that would come in and would have liver function test abnormalities, and they would have some kind of bloodborne exposure. And so we knew that there was something there, but it really wasn't until 1989 that it was defined that it was hepatitis C itself that was an RNA virus. 
And uh, somebody won the Nobel Prize recently for that discovery. Is that right? That's exactly right. So why is it that so many baby boomers have hepatitis C? Baby boomers are those individuals that were born really right after the the Second World War. And they're defined as people typically that uh, were born with dates of birth between 1945 and 1965. It's thought that they have higher rates of hepatitis C, probably somewhere around three to four times that of the general population, because they were exposed through medical procedures, primarily blood transfusions before the blood was screened, and the blood was deemed to be safe really in July of 1992, but also because they might have been exposed through injection drug use in the 60s and 70s before people really understood what hepatitis C was and how it was transmitted. And there have been a lot of efforts to uh, screen baby boomers uh, to try to get a handle on how much hepatitis C is out there in that demographic. Is that right? Yes. Initially, hepatitis C screening started, uh, there was an MMWR document that was uh, published in 1998 and defined risk factors for hepatitis C, including the blood transfusions that I talked about before, injection drug use, organ transplantation, amongst other things. But then studies that were done that looked at the NHANES data um, from a variety of different studies, these were population-based data that looked at, at individuals that were living in the community. And as part of that, they looked at hepatitis C rates. And as part of that, they looked at hepatitis C rates in baby boomers. And that's when it was established that people had higher rates of hepatitis C in that population. So in 2012, the, there was a recommendation made that individuals that were born between those years, 1945 through 1965 inclusive, should be screened at least once for hepatitis C unless they had ongoing risk factors. Now, since that time, there's more universal screening, but that's where the, the first recommendation for hepatitis C screening in baby boomers came forward. So what are the current screening recommendations for hepatitis C? Beginning in 2020, CDC changed their recommendations to make them simpler to understand. So any adult 18 and over should be screened for hepatitis C at least once. And if people have ongoing risk factors, say injection drug use, or you have had a high risk needle, needle stick exposure, or maybe ongoing hemodialysis, you may need to be screened more regularly than that. Um, the other recommendation is in children, if they have risk factors for it, they should also be screened even earlier than 18. So for instance, if somebody has been born to a, a known hepatitis C positive mother, or if they have other, have other risks for percutaneous exposure to hepatitis C, they can be screened as children as well. The, the other uh, individual that should be screened more regularly are pregnant women who are in an area where the seroprevalence of hepatitis C is greater than 0.1% should be screened with each pregnancy as well. Thanks. So have there been changes to the demographics since then? What are the recent uh, demographics? Well, there aren't a lot of great new data on hepatitis C. Um, and in particular, with related to opioid good epidemic uh, that have happened in recent years, and what impact that has had on acute hepatitis C. But I can say that most of the hepatitis C that we see in our clinic is related to individuals that have had some kind of percutaneous exposure, primarily through injection drug use, unsafe injection drug use. And we have been seeing more cases in the hospital of acute hepatitis C where we didn't see that for a long time. So the, the, 
the relation to blood transfusion is is more limited as time goes on, as you get further and further and further away from people that got transfused in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, et cetera, and now more related to, to percutaneous use. Now, you can have people that develop hepatitis C in other countries, and the demographics may be very different, but it's not as, as well studied there as in the United States, at least from our perspective. Thank you. And um, I think I should have said this is Dr. Sofair that's answering my question right now. So thank you, Dr. Sofair. You're welcome. So when we look at like a, a special population, in fact, the baby boomers are a great example of that. Um, they're, uh, you know, they were a high risk based on the um, epidemiology. But there's a other special population specifically when, uh, with people with HIV and that there's a special risk for hepatitis C uh, co-infection for people with HIV. So why is there such a special risk for people to have co-infection? I could take this one. So there is an overlap in how both of these viruses are acquired. They're both bloodborne pathogens. And so that's why there's an overlap in these two epidemics. Uh, hepatitis C is almost exclusively transmitted through blood. So the primary route of transmission here in the United States is through intravenous drug use. Now, of course, HIV can also be spread that way. And so that's where we have the overlap. However, HIV here in the United States is more readily spread through sexual transmission, whereas hepatitis C is not. And so if we look specifically at the HIV population, those who acquire their HIV through intravenous drug use are more likely to be co-infected with hepatitis C, whereas those who acquire their HIV through sexual transmission are less likely to be co-infected with HIV. But that's where those two epidemics overlap. Now there's also the tendency for hepatitis C-induced cirrhosis to be accelerated in the setting of co-infection with HIV. And so that's why it's important to screen all patients with HIV for hepatitis C uh, so that we can treat it early. Thank you, Dr. Canarino. So when did hep C treatments first become available? It really started in the early 90s and it started off with interferon-based therapy. And at that point in the early 90s, interferon had to be dosed. Interferon is an injection. It's uh, stimulates the, the immune system. And it was given as a daily dose. There was then the development of what is called pegylated interferon. Pegylation allows for a more depot formulation, a formulation that lasts longer within the body and gives you better and more predictable pharmacokinetics. And that pegylated interferon only needed to be given three times weekly as opposed to daily. That was the initial therapy. When interferon, plain interferon was used alone, the cure rate was around 10, 10%. It was used for six months and then people tried to use it for 12 months with a little bit of an increase in, in what we call sustained biologic response, which is cure after hepatitis C. It's a viral load that's negative, usually 12 weeks after cessation of therapy. And then what happened in addition to the pegylated interferon, ribavirin was added. Ribavirin is an oral antiviral medication that was added that needed to be taken daily. And so the initial therapy for hepatitis C was pegylated interferon and ribavirin given for six to 12 months. That was the initial therapy. And that's when I started treated, treating hepatitis C was when pegylated interferon was available with ribavirin. And how much did the cure rate increase when you went to pegylated interferon and ribavirin? 
Cure rate was dependent on what's known as the genotype. So in, the, in, in the world, there are really six different genotypes, genotypes one through six. In the United States, the main genotypes are one, two, and three, with most people that are infected are infected with uh, genotype one. There are subtypes as well, for instance, genotype 1A and 1B, but for the most part, you're talking about genotypes one, two, and three in the United States. Genotype one, which was the most common or is the most common, is also the most difficult to treat with interferon and ribavirin. You typically have to treat the patient for 12 months and the cure rate is somewhere around 40%. That's assuming that patients are able to take the treatment for that entire time frame. Genotypes two and three can be treated for six months and the cure rate was closer to 80% if people were able to take the whole, the total time course. So it sounds like pegylated uh, interferon and ribavirin increased the cure rate, but not not that much. And adherence, of course, was a major issue. And genotype was a major issue. And what about liver function? Does liver function impact the efficacy of treatments, of the old treatments? Uh, and did it affect treatment choices back in the old days when you were still using the interferon and ribavirin? Um, to some degree, it did. People used to think that liver function test abnormalities were predictive of liver biopsy findings, when in fact they really weren't. You could have people that had completely normal liver function tests that had advanced fibrosis in at least 30% of cases. Um, so it was an, an imperfect predictor of what you might see on liver biopsy. Where it did have an impact, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is if the patient had cirrhosis, in particular, if they had decompensated cirrhosis, where they had clinical manifestations from their cirrhosis, those people were much more difficult to treat with interferon and ribavirin because you had the risk of hepatic decompensation. Their liver might get worse when you treat them with interferon and ribavirin. And also, those individuals tended to have problems with their cell counts, their white blood cell counts, their red cell count, and their platelets. And those could be impacted quite profoundly by both interferon and ribavirin. Interferon could affect all three cell lines and ribavirin could affect the hemoglobin. And so that was a major limitation in terms of treating people early on was the, the side effect profile of the medications, in particular people with advanced liver disease. I, I know early day tolerability of the interferon treatments, ribavirin included, was challenging, very challenging, and people would try it and couldn't, um, they would have to drop out. Obviously, the medications have changed, and there's a whole new class of drugs that address hepatitis C. Can you explain for our listeners how these new drugs called direct acting antivirals changed the landscape for treatment of hepatitis C? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, really beginning in 2013, 2014, uh, there was this essentially a paradigm shift in how we treat hepatitis C um, from the way that Dr. Sofer just described to these new direct acting antivirals or direct acting agents, uh, which is typically abbreviated as DAAs. And the reason that they're abbreviated this way is because the prior treatments of interferon and ribavirin didn't have any specific antiviral targets. They kind of worked in these kind of hand-wavy ways of, you know, uh, activating the immune system to clear the virus. These drugs were specifically designed with specific viral targets, whether they are protease inhibitors um, or NS5A or NS5B uh, replication complex uh, chain terminators. Those are basically your, your two main classes of direct acting agents. 
Um, and they're used in combinations of typically two, sometimes three, and are co-formulated into these various drugs that are marketed. So really all of the benefits of direct acting agents over the prior treatment are all the downsides that Dr. Sofer just mentioned of interferon and ribavirin. So they're completely oral. There's no more injection. The treatment duration has shrunk from 12 months of treatment to eight to 12 weeks. Uh, the side effect profile is completely different. Uh, interferon affects almost every organ system, very predictable, uh, high rates of side effects, whereas the direct acting agents have very few side effects. I think in our combined experience, Dr. Sofer and I have only had to stop therapy in one or two patients because of intolerability. Um, and the treatment uh, success with direct acting agents, uh, most cases today approaches 100%, uh, as opposed to the 40 to 80% that Dr. Silvera quoted for the best case scenario for interferon and ribavirin. So for all those reasons, direct acting agents have really taken the field by storm and we're treating way more patients than we, we had been prior to this era. Do, uh, do liver function and uh, viral genotype, those testing still affect treatment choices? Uh, less so. So the newest direct acting agents that are out um, are what we call pan-genotypic, which means they treat every genotype of hepatitis C. So in the, the new um, uh, simplified hepatitis C guidelines that the IDSA and AASLD have published, uh, they don't even recommend checking genotypes for these patients because as long as you're prescribing a pangenotypic regimen, uh, you don't even need to know the genotype. So for those drugs, it's not, it doesn't affect it. Um, and liver function, as long as you have, uh, as long as you don't have decompensated cirrhosis, uh, doesn't really affect uh, the treatment at all. Once you get to the level of decompensated cirrhosis, you start um, extending therapy or potentially adding ribavirin. Um, but short of that, it doesn't affect it. Really, the only downside of these medications is, has been the cost um, and getting access to them. Other than that, um, they're really uh, transformative for the field. And which is amazing, which is a, a wonderful thing. Um, although the cost, you know, I, has totally been um, a consideration from the early days, especially mm -hmm. access. Um, and, and past history of treatment, when you're thinking about patients that have had already gone through some previous history of uh, treatment, it, how does that change, um, you know, them returning and actually uh, working, continuing to work after a gap in treatment, uh, episodic gap? Um, how does that change uh, when you're choosing a treatment to put them on to finish addressing their um, hep C? If we see patients that have been treated before, as long as they have not been treated with a sofosbuvir-based regimen, then it doesn't affect the, the direct acting agent regimen that we give them this time. If they have been treatment experienced with a sofosbuvir-based regimen, uh, then we typically um, revert to using what we call salvage therapy, which is still oral therapy. Um, it's just typically for a longer period of time and it's using three agents instead of two. Um, that's relatively new. That's become available in the last, I would say four to five years. Um, whereas before, if you failed 
a sulfosporin-based regimen, we didn't have much to offer, but now there's salvage therapy, which is highly effective. So it's interesting that you brought up sulfosporin um, because I understand there's a new combination drug of sulfosporin and velpatosphere that is again changing the landscape of hepatitis, hepatitis C treatment. Um, how is that happening? So, so fosbuvir velpatosphere is one of the uh, combination drugs that I talk about that's pan-genotypic. So it will treat any type of, uh, any genotype of hepatitis C. So that's what makes it uh, unique. It is not the only combination that we use that is pan-genotypic. The other one is glucaprevir and pibrentosphere. And I think the, the decision to use one over the other is primarily based on where you're practicing and insurance preferences. I would say for our part, just based on uh, the state of Connecticut, when we typically treat patients, we use the glucaprevir-pibrentosphere combination. But my understanding is that internationally, sofosbuvir-velpatosphere is, is more common. But that's really what makes this drug unique is its ability to treat any genotype. And so what one of the things that this does is it removes that barrier of needing to identify what genotype a patient has. Uh, and particularly when you're working in resource limited settings, that's a really nice barrier to be able to, to eliminate in order to treat these patients. That must speed up the time to treatment. What's the likelihood that a sulfosbuvir resistant strain of um, hepatitis C could emerge? No, it's not something that we see very often in treatment of hepatitis C. It's not like when we're treating HIV and we see uh, resistance uh, quite frequently. Uh, hepatitis C is not something that we see develop resistance commonly. And even when we treat patients with sofosbuvir-based regimens and they fail, uh, when we retreat them, oftentimes we don't even need to check genotypes like we do for uh, HIV because the susceptibility to the virus is so predictable that we could just prescribe them salvage therapy. So for us in the field, we're not, we're not really uh, worried about uh, resistance emergence. Well, that's great. That's a huge plus. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, does treatment differ for an acute hepatitis C case versus chronic hepatitis C? Historically, it, it did. What we used to do when we were into, in the interferon and ribavirin-based era is if somebody came up with uh, acute hepatitis C, we would try and predict whether or not they would respond and resolve on their own. The resolution rate of acute hepatitis C in terms of spontaneous cure, depending on the study, is somewhere around 20 to maybe 40%. With women who had acute hepatitis C, a small inoculum of virus people that are less than 40 and people that have symptoms